Welcome to the Clinical Education Initiative podcast, Conversations with CEI, where we feature conversations with clinical experts, their experience and insights on current health issues in the areas of HIV, primary care and prevention, sexual health, hepatitis C, and drug user health. Hello, my name is Tony Urbina, the Medical Director for CEI's HIV Primary Care and Prevention Center of Excellence. I am a provider and professor of medicine at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, who has been working in the field of HIV for over 20 years. It's been over 40 years since the first case of HIV was identified. According to UNAIDS, as of 2020, 37.7 million people are living with HIV globally, and HIV continues to be one of the most significant epidemics of our time. A simple-to-use vaccine would be a key tool in reaching the populations most affected by HIV. UNAIDS also estimates that even a modestly effective vaccine, one that is 50% effective, would have a big impact on the epidemic and may be enough to significantly reduce new HIV infections among key populations. Additionally, a cure for HIV infection is one of the ultimate long-term goals of researchers today. And after 35 years of research, scientists are now more hopeful of what is on the horizon. In fact, in March of 2022, a cisgender woman was cured of HIV with a bone marrow and umbilical cord transplant and hailed as the first case of a woman being cured of HIV. The science is expanding, raising many hopes and challenges. In this episode, I spoke with two experts to review the latest updates on these important strategies for eliminating HIV. First, I spoke with Mitchell Warren, Executive Director of the AIDS Vaccine Advocacy Coalition, or AVAC. In my conversation with Mitchell, he discussed AVAC's HIV advocacy efforts and many of the challenges and new advancements in developing an HIV vaccine. Next, I spoke with Dr. Marina Kasky, Professor of clinical investigation at the Rockefeller University and an infectious diseases physician at Weill Cornell Medical Center. In this conversation with Dr. Kasky, she shared the latest research on an HIV cure, and we unpack some of the challenges of what an HIV cure really means. Together, these discussions help inform how much HIV research has expanded over the last 40 years and where these medical interventions are headed in the future. Thank you for listening to these conversations today. To learn more, please check out our podcast notes or go to ceitraining.org. On today's episode, we are examining where we are in the development of an HIV vaccine and cure. Despite the existence of medications that can control HIV and even reduce viral transmission, HIV is still a leading cause of death and a health threat to millions worldwide. Today, we want to discuss the latest science in eliminating and preventing HIV. For our first segment, we are joined by Mitchell Warren. Mitchell Warren has been the Executive Director of AIDS Vaccine Advocacy Coalition, or AVAC, since 2004, an international nonprofit organization that uses education, policy analysis, advocacy, and a network of global collaborations to accelerate the ethical development and global delivery of new and emerging HIV prevention options as part of a comprehensive and integrated pathway to global health equity. 
He is a member of many boards and committees, including the PEPFAR Scientific Advisory Board, the International AIDS Society Governing Council, and the International AIDS Society Towards an HIV Cure Initiative, co-chair of the Global HIV Prevention Coalition, president of the TB Alliance Stakeholder Association, and past president of the Global HIV Vaccine Enterprise. Mitchell has degrees in English and history from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and has studied health policy at the Johns Hopkins University School of Hygiene and Public Health. Welcome, Mitchell, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Great to see you again. Yeah, it's a pleasure talking with you. I mean, just such an impressive background and just so much time in this field. And I know you're not only an advocate for science, but you're a strong advocate in this field. So tell us a little bit about your background and what got you into this work. Yeah. Well, it's funny, as you were doing that very kind introduction, I I realized how old I am. But I guess my my work in in this field really began about 30 years ago. and And it was actually not specifically about HIV and AIDS, but I was involved in a group in the late 80s, early 90s, focused on South African healthcare coming out of was still the apartheid period. And and Mandela had just been released from prison. It was all beginning to look like there'd be a new South Africa. And and it was really about, I was involved in an organization that was supporting the the, the training of health workers back in the late 80s, early 90s. And then eventually moved to South Africa in 1993 to set up the first condom social marketing program. So although although we're going to talk about vaccines, my background was working on a technology that not only have we had for the entire history of HIV, 41 years, but actually we've had it for hundreds and thousands of years, and that's the condom. And, And so my work really began around how do we make an existing product available, accessible, and used to prevent infections? And and then one thing led to another. And as you said, for the last 18 years, I've been working at AVAC and really that intersection of communities and research and development. But I guess for me, the whole defining characteristic is how do you bring science and communities together to, to end this epidemic of HIV AIDS, but also COVID, monkeypox, you name it. It's the right. intersection of science and community. Amazing. Yeah. So it's interesting how that whole intersection of community with science is super important and really connecting Mm. those dots. So specifically with your work for vaccine development, can you briefly describe for us a little bit about this historical timeline of the HIV vaccine development and how effective does a vaccine have to be? Great set of questions. And and I'll answer it the same today as I might have done two and a half years ago before COVID. Mm -hmm. But I will say that when you think both about the timelines and the levels of efficacy, you know, it's hard not to put it in the context of COVID. And and what I mean by that is we've had the HIV AIDS pandemic for 41 years. In the early 80s, um, people may remember, and it's often misquoted, but Margaret Heckler, the Secretary of Health and Human Services at the time in the Reagan administration, talked about the opportunities for an HIV vaccine and, and actually said officially that after the identification of HIV as the cause, that she hoped that there would be an HIV vaccine in human clinical trials within two years. And indeed, that was the case. She's often misquoted as over-promising a vaccine in that time frame. But, but it's interesting because back in the 80s, we would never have thought you could develop a vaccine in, in a couple of years. Historically, it's taken decades. But of course, COVID showed us that, that things could happen in a very different way. But it's been a hard 38 years of HIV vaccine research. And 
And, and a lot of it relates to how complex the pathogen is. And again, when you compare it to COVID, the identification of, of SARS-CoV-2, the spike protein that we all talk about, and within a matter of weeks, there were vaccines that were designed, right? In HIV, that took years and years because we didn't understand the pathogen right away, because we, we didn't have some of the tools and technologies in the 80s that we have today. And actually, it was only in the late 90s when the first vaccine, actually, HIV vaccine, actually entered into the large efficacy trials. So it took over 15, 18 years to go from identifying HIV as the cause to developing a vaccine candidate to getting into efficacy trials. And of course, what took 18 years for HIV took four months in SARS-CoV-2. Right. right. But, but it's important when people say, well, why is that? And, and a lot of it comes down as devastating as COVID has been in all of our lives. SARS-CoV-2 has been a relatively easy pathogen around which to design a vaccine. But of course, HIV is diabolic. It attacks the very cells that we want a vaccine to boost. It mutates so very rapidly, far more rapidly than SARS-CoV-2. So we still struggle. And in fact, in the course of this 38-year odyssey of HIV vaccine research, there are only a handful of vaccine trials that have been these large phase three trials. And only one of those has actually had the proof of concept, a trial that people may remember from Thailand in 2009 that had partial efficacy, about 30% effective, which wasn't good enough to license it and, and was then modified in another trial that showed that it didn't work. But that's the only thing. So we do have evidence that a vaccine is possible. The other trials of other vaccine candidates have all been setbacks, dis disappointments, I mean, not because they weren't good trials, they were beautifully done trials, but they just had vaccine candidates that couldn't mount an immune response that was effective enough against HIV. How good does it need to be? That's a great question. Clearly, the 30% seen in Thailand was viewed by all agencies, regulators as not good enough. But there is some hope that a 50% or higher level of efficacy could get in the ballpark of a licensed product. But we're still not there with, with that kind of vaccine yet. Right. I guess continuing with your analogy to SARS-CoV-2 and COVID, which I think is a great analogy to make. So we've recently heard in the news that thanks to the advances with the COVID mRNA vaccines, that there was new enthusiasm with this technology and that it could maybe help us in the search for an HIV vaccine. What are your thoughts about that? And what does the science tell us? And, and where's the field moving with that? It's actually quite remarkable that one thing to note that one of the reasons we got COVID vaccines so quickly was certainly that SARS-CoV-2 was easy. But the other reason we got COVID vaccines so quickly is, is the decades of HIV vaccine investment. Almost every one of the vaccine candidates, the mRNA candidates that, you, that we hear about and many of us have received as vaccines, the Johnson & Johnson ADNO26 vector for a COVID vaccine, some of the protein-based vaccines, all of them were in development for HIV vaccine. So it's a fascinating story that, that the, and most of the clinical trial sites, the researchers, everybody involved in HIV very quickly pivoted to COVID. And, and I would argue that one of the reasons we got COVID vaccines so quickly was because of the HIV vaccine enterprise. The big question now is, can that kind of, is there payback time? Can the, can the advances of COVID vaccines pay back and help HIV vaccines? And so there's a lot of hope that mRNA might be that payback. There are now already, just in the last six months, just in the first half of 2022, we've seen three different clinical trials begin 
that are using mRNA platforms from Moderna, but used in HIV vaccine candidates. That's the good news. And so there's a lot of excitement because clearly we saw how quickly things happened with COVID. But here's the one little, well, actually, I'd say one big caveat. Vaccines have two aspects. They have a, a vector or a platform that, that needs to deliver an immunogen. So the vector is mRNA, ad 26 a pox protein. That, that's the delivery system. I think of it as a, a vehicle. That's what needs to deliver something to the cell. And you need to have the right passenger, the right immunogen to, to mount an immune response. That's the passenger in the car. We know that mRNA is a great vehicle and it certainly worked for COVID, but so did the ADENO26 vaccine from Johnson & Johnson because we knew, the, we knew the immunogen, we knew that spike protein in SARS-CoV-2. The challenge with HIV, with HIV is that we still don't quite know what passenger to put in our vehicle. And it's important to, to know that just as Johnson & Johnson was developing the AD26 for COVID, one of the largest HIV vaccine trials in Africa was using the same exact Johnson & Johnson ADENO26 for HIV and that trial was stopped early because it didn't work in, in Southern Africa. Now that same ADNO26 for an HIV vaccine is in a study in the US and Latin America and Europe right now called Mosaico. That's our one big efficacy trial in HIV vaccines. So we'll see if that vaccine still works. But the important thing to note is that the mRNA platform does give us some new opportunities, but it doesn't in and of itself solve this, this real kind of holy grail is what's the right immune response to provide an antibody protection against HIV? So I, I think we're hopeful for these small phase one mRNA trials, but they are, they are just the beginning of the process. Right. So speaking to that, so aside from the, these new trials using mRNA, what else do you see in the future for HIV vaccine development? Well, you know, it's been a remarkable couple of years to see HIV vaccine research in the midst of COVID. We didn't get that setback, as I said, from Johnson & Johnson. But just in February last year, we got the results of a suite of studies that weren't actually a vaccine, but they were a, what I would guess I would call vaccine adjacent. They were monoclonal antibodies. And again, we all talk about these antibodies because of COVID now. But these were antibodies that were being delivered through an infusion as potential protection against HIV. And these trials were called the Antibody Mediated Prevention Trials, or AMP. And what they showed us was it, it did demonstrate the proof of concept that an antibody response could protect some people some of the time, depending on what virus they were exposed to. And, and it's a complicated story, but it does prove that a neutralizing antibody response can be effective prevention. So what's happening now is people working on a number of these vaccines, including the mRNAs, are trying to get those vaccine candidates to elicit the same immune response that we saw in the AMP trial. And so it's really one of the most exciting times in HIV vaccine science, but I would say that we're still very early in that, in, in trying to marry those antibody responses with these new platforms. And what you're hearing a lot right now mm -hmm. is that we're seeing a lot of much smaller trials rather than these large efficacy trials in HIV vaccines. You'll often hear them described as, as small phase ones or experimental medicine trials that are really not the actual products that we expect to get licensed right away, but it's testing more rapidly concepts 
so that we can begin to see, oh, that's, that's getting closer to the immune response we need. Now we need to tweak it and do it this way. So it's this rapid iteration. So you're seeing the field really focusing on, on these smaller, faster studies to answer specific questions that then move us to the next trial and the next trial. So it's an exciting time, but it's, it's not yet products that we're, we're going to see delivered to, to have huge impact in the near, near term. Right. And talking about, I mean, you're very much involved in equity and as is AVAC. Can you talk a little bit about the role that you played and AVAC has played in being an advocate for the development of these vaccines and in terms mm. of moving the uh, this like needle forward? Yeah. So if you look back to the whole history of HIV, community-led responses have, have really driven the AIDS response. That's true of early treatment research in the United States. And obviously we know of the ACT UP experience in this country and elsewhere. We then moved to community leading access campaigns and the treatment action campaign in South Africa as a great example. And so at AVAC, with many partners around the world, we try to do that same thing. How do we bring communities in to the scientific discourse and, and making sure that even as we all get excited rightly, you know, we've had oral prep now for a decade. We've had now just in December approved in the United States injectable cabotegravir for prep. In a number of African countries, we've seen the approval of depivirine vaginal ring. What's really important is communities are, are working hard to both advocate for accelerating access to the products that we now have, but recognizing that no one product's enough. And so AVAC and partners are advocating for access to what we have, but simultaneously advocating to be sure that we don't give up on the research and development of a vaccine and on cure strategies. Because if there's anything we know in, in this epidemic, and I would say the same for COVID, is no one intervention is the answer. It's never just about masks or vaccines or just about condoms or PrEP. It's about condoms and PrEP and eventually a vaccine. Because at the end of the day, to get to equity, we need to help get people the products and information they need to make good decisions. And and that can be about taking a pill a day. It could be about getting an injection every two months. Hopefully in the future, it could be about getting a vaccine. But communities need to be driving that. Um, if research sits in laboratories and in clinical trials and doesn't engage communities, we won't see the fruits of science having any impact. And again, I think we see that with, with COVID vaccines. We see it with PrEP. Bringing communities into the research process is an investment in their trust in the science, their trust in the products, their trust in the institutions. And all too well that we've all seen a diminishing amount of trust. And so if anything, right. in the last two years, I think our work around building trust, building equity, building confidence in science is more important than ever before. Because if, even if the science could develop a vaccine, if people feel, as some people did in COVID, that it went too fast, or I don't understand how that happened. So a lot of AVAC's work is is what we consider vaccine literacy and research literacy, helping people really engage with that. And then on particular issues, so for example, right now in a vaccine trial that's recruiting people who may be at risk of HIV, as advocates, we want vaccine research, but we also want those trial participants to have access to PrEP. So advocates have been at the forefront of thinking about what does a clinical trial design need to look like that is answering a vaccine question, but offering PrEP at the same time. And and while researchers and policymakers and funders have a lot to say about that, so too to advocates. Yeah, a lot of interesting points that you bring up there and the kind of politic 
democratization of vaccines and what that means. Just do you see that in the HIV vaccine world compared to the COVID? What's what's been your experience there? Yeah, I think he, as public health people, often we go from pandemic to pandemic. We go from prep to vaccines. In our experience, communities around the world, it, you don't. It's not siloed. It's not like there are COVID advocates and HIV advocates or that they're PrEP advocates and they're vaccine advocates. I think what we really see is people trying to wrap their heads around all of these issues, because at the end of the day, this has less to do with the individual pathogen, whether that's mm-hmm. monkeypox or SARS-CoV-2 or HIV. At the end of the day, this is about how does science happen in an equitable way, in a participatory way? How does access happen in an equitable way, in a participatory way? How do communities engage with these issues? And and so it's, it's the, the larger story is not actually about HIV or about COVID. I believe right now we're at this incredible moment in public health that the conversations are really about trust in science, about confidence in our health systems or lack of confidence. And if we think about this pandemic at a time, we're going to be re-adjudicating the same issues every time we have a pandemic. And I think, again, we're seeing it just right now with monkeypox. Some of the issues we're grappling with about lack of preparedness, lack of community engagement, lack of connecting dots, we would have said that same thing two years ago with COVID. We would have said the same thing a decade ago about PrEP access. We said the same thing 20 years ago about HIV treatment access. So if anything, I think this, this, this series of pandemics right now shines the lights on our political systems, our health systems, our civil systems, and and what's working and what's not working. Mm -hmm. And I hope we're going to get to some solutions that aren't pandemic specific, but are rather people-centered and focused on systems for the future, because that to me is is the answer. If we do it pandemic by pandemic, we do what I I think of as whack-a-mole. We'll deal with HIV over here, (laughs) then it's like COVID here and monkeypox here. TB still is here. Eyes are still here. And we've got to connect the dots around science, around policies, around access. Even if an HIV vaccine is years away, we need to be thinking about that in this larger context, because that's how people live. They don't live in pandemics. They live in in this much larger ecosystem that we need to be responsive to. Wow. Wow. Very well said. Mitchell, thank you so much for joining us today. And just to end here, how, how can people learn more about kind of the work that you do? AVAC and about HIV vaccines? The easiest place in this world of the internet is, is AVAC.org, AVAC.org, with links to things about all sorts of literacy materials about HIV vaccines, about the research process, about research ethics, about the good participatory practice guidelines of research. There's also links to the prevention products that we have. So people We want advocates to be just as aware of vaccine research as they are of PrEP rolling out, as they are of STI prevention, as they are of condoms. So AVAC.org, and we love to get questions. And if there's material that doesn't exist to address some of this, let us know because we'd love to create that and be helpful. That's great. Thanks again, Mitchell. Thank you so much. Now that we spoke with Mitchell Warren about the HIV vaccine landscape, we would like to shift to discussing the current research on developing an HIV cure and breaking down what that means. In this segment, we are joined by Dr. Marina Kasky. Dr. Marina Kasky is a professor of clinical investigation at the Rockefeller University. Her work focuses on the development and clinical evaluation of novel immunotherapeutic strategies against infectious diseases, 
with a special emphasis on HIV. Dr. Kasky has led a series of early phase clinical studies to evaluate the safety and efficacy of broadly neutralizing anti-HIV antibodies. These studies have revitalized this area of HIV research, which had been abandoned after first-generation antibodies failed to show significant effects in humans. Broadly neutralizing antibodies are now considered one of the most promising strategies to achieve HIV remission, as well as potential alternatives to antiretrovirals for both therapy and prevention. Dr. Kasky is also an attending physician in infectious diseases at Weill Cornell Medical Center and an elected member of the American Society of Clinical Investigation. Welcome, Dr. Marina Kasky, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Tony. It's a pleasure to be here today. Yes, very much looking forward to speaking with you. And I guess to start, could you describe a little bit about your background and how you became interested in HIV cure research? So as you mentioned, I I completed my medical training in in Brazil, my medical Mm. school, and then I did my infectious diseases fellowship at Cornell, which happens to be right next door to, to Rockefeller, which is a basic science primarily institution. But within Rockefeller, there is a program called a clinical scholars program, which is designed to to provide physicians or MD-PhDs that have clinical training an opportunity, a period of time to engage in laboratory-based research with the idea that one can then train to be a translational researcher, to, to really be sort of in the intersect between the lab and the clinic. So when I first joined, I joined a lab, an immunology lab on dendritic cells, and I first actually started working on HIV vaccines, which I guess is a good segue to Mitchell's discussion that you had earlier. And we, we so during that time, we worked with the dendritic cell targeted vaccine. But then another lab within the university, Dr. Michelle Nussenswijk's lab, began working on HIV from a B-cell antibody perspective. And he then had isolated these very broad and potent antibodies from people living with HIV. And as you mentioned, this this is considered a new generation of antibodies because they they had greater activity than earlier antibodies that had been in the clinic. So then there was this opportunity for me to join this clinical group to bring these new molecules into the clinic. And at first, really, the, the goal was to see that they have activity in humans in vivo doing HIV infection. And after the first studies that we did, it became clear that we could explore other functions that antibodies have that, that distinguish antibodies from antiretrovirus. So because antibodies, they have two, two sides to, the, to them. One side binds to the virus, but the other side, the FC portion of the antibody, interacts with the rest of the immune system. So there is, because of these activities, there is a possibility that the antibodies can then either eliminate infected cells by sort of tagging the cells that have HIV on their surface, or they can, and then by doing so, alert the rest of the immune system to eliminate those cells. So that is where the antibodies then can become a potential strategy for curing HIV, because By doing that, by eliminating these cells or improving existing immune responses, they have have these functions that antiretrovirus do not have. So it was sort of a natural progression of our our research to move from first dendritic cell vaccines to antibody, simple studies to show activity, to then exploring these more immunologic and, and direct targeting of the reservoir. And then from there, I I became involved with other groups studying the different strategies for HIV cure. 
and I'm linked to the to the AIDS clinical trials group, and I chair the the subcommittee on on care strategies. So I, because of that, now I have an opportunity to have sort of a, like a broader view of what the field is looks like in terms of different modalities that are coming together. Wow, that is so interesting, and I love that it's all this translational work and <laughs> basic science meets an infectious disease clinicians. Thank you so much for sharing that background. So I. I wanted to start by how does your field define now an HIV cure? Right. So I think so for a, for a long time, the, the field tried to focus on what one would call it eradicating HIV. Mm-hmm. And by that, one means eliminating the very last cell that carries virus that can be reactivated and then reinitiate infection if, if antiretrovirus were to be discontinued. But it's, it has become very clear that eradicating HIV entirely, is, it's very complex because the HIV reservoirs, so the cells that harbor the virus, they are throughout the body, even in places where it's hard to reach, not only the drugs, but also right. the immune responses. So this has sort of then evolved to what's now called the functional cure or HIV remission or treatment-free remission. And this borrows a little bit from the, from the cancer immunotherapy field, where there's been great success in cancer, where there are different strategies that sort of reset the immune response against cancer cells. So in this case, it would be a combination of decreasing the size of these reservoir, the HIV reservoirs, but together improving the immune response that can then maintain those remaining cells that still carry HIV sort of in check, suppressed, so that they do not cause replication. In other words, so that one can go off of ART without having to have a viral load that can be detected and then cause risk of transmission or progression to disease. And I think under that umbrella, the other area that we like to think about is even this concept of HIV functional cure, which is there is still HIV, but you cannot have a detectable viral load. What does that really mean for, for someone living with HIV? It may be that for some, if you, can, if you had long-acting antiretrovirus or long-acting other modalities, where one could, would receive a dose only every six months or every year, perhaps, or even less than that, without requiring daily treatment and in a way that it prevents progression of disease, that maybe would be considered a cure or a remission, a good enough, so to speak, for some people with HIV. But when we are talking about functional cure in the cure world, we are really talking about getting to a state where continued treatment of whatever modality doesn't have to be given that you reset the immune responses of the individual in such a way that the individual by him or herself can continue to maintain the virus in check, not replicating for an extended period of time. It seems like that's a difficult task given from what you've said. And could you talk a little bit about how the research in your field has moved towards that direction, like addressing the reservoir and that functional cure? It is certainly, even if you go short of, of eradicating HIV, even leading to this long-term control is extremely challenging. And it's challenging for, for many reasons. One is the, the nature of the virus itself, which is, mm-hmm. you know, it's a very diverse virus within, now we talk a lot about variation within SARS-CoV-2 as the pandemic evolves. But if you take that as an example, in HIV, that is a lot greater in terms of diversity, that even within a person living with HIV, the number of variants within that single individual is it's huge. 
so what that causes is that as the virus evolved over time before someone goes on treatment, the immune responses, the antibodies and the T-cell responses against the virus have also evolved, but usually they are falling behind the virus in terms of diversity. So in order for you to, quote, reset the immune responses to control the residual virus, you would have to repurpose or redirect those existing immune responses in a way that they are now relevant to the viruses that were within the reservoir. So they, the viruses have not escaped to these new redirected antibodies or T cells, and they are functional. One of the characteristics of HIV is that, well, it infects CD4 T cells, so that's number one. But in addition to that, there are other hits to, to the functionality of the immune system. So these cells are exhausted. They are not functioning properly. So you'd have to then recover some of that. So redirect the specificity of the immune responses and then recover some of that functionality. So that's the immune challenge. Mm-hmm. And then the virus, challenge, the virus challenge, a big, a lot has been learned in terms of the reservoir of where the reservoir is, where the characteristics of the cells that harbor the virus, and then even how to measure the virus. These are all still extremely challenging. There have been new assays that can quantify the virus, but we still don't really know exactly what differentiates cells that have the have HIV that can replicate from cells that have HIV, but HIV that is defective, that, it, that would not create infection again, if you discontinue the ART. So ideally, you'd like to really be able to define very specifically the cells that are the problem cells, but they are in a needle in a haystack. And because you would want to then target your therapy to only those cells that are the ones that carry the virus that could cause infection again. And there have been advances in understanding how these cells remain in the body, how they proliferate over time. And with this new knowledge, Now one can think that over the next several years, perhaps there will be strategies that could be more focused on the subset, which is a subset of that really matters when you're talking about long-term control. Thank you. In actual line with the work that you've been doing, we saw some exciting news recently that there was a woman from New York City that was treated at Cornell who received a stem cell and umbilical cord transplant and was hailed as the first case of a woman cured of HIV. Can you talk to us a little bit about that case and kind of the role that you played with that patient? Yeah, sure. So what's unique? So, so this case, we're called, that she was a patient of colleagues at Cornell just across the street. What is, so she would be the, the third person deemed to be cured from HIV. And then in this sense, we are talking probably of HIV eradication. This person together with the the two other patients that were known as the Berlin patient and the London patient. They were individuals that had to undergo a bone marrow transplant because they had underlying cancer. So the indication for the bone marrow transplant was because of their malignancy. And at some point after the transplant, they went off of ART and all of the measurements of of presence of HIV over time disappeared, including antibody responses against HIV. So these were individuals that had positive HIV test. And then over time, they lost that positivity to HIV. So the body could no longer detect HIV. What is unique about this case is that number one, this is is the first case of a woman that is cured of HIV. Importantly, she's also someone of mixed race. Right. But another part that is very interesting about this is the type of bone marrow transplant that she received. She received 
transplant that it was based on, it was a mix of cord blood transplant with an, an auto transplant. So what that, and, and with cells that the donor cells, so the cord blood cells carry the, this mutation in CCR5. So they had the CCR5 Delta 32 mutation that makes one resistant to HIV. So, and this is, this is also the CCR5 mutation in the donor cells is also, is what there is in common between this case and the two earlier cases. The difference here is that the cord blood transplant allows for, it takes, while it takes longer for the, trans, for the transplanted cells to take, so to speak, there is less risk of GVHD. The person is less sick following transplant. So, so there is less graft versus host disease. So this is exactly what happened to her. It took a little longer for the, the donor cells to take over her bone marrow, but she was she didn't have a lot of complications post-transplant, and she didn't experience this graft-versus-host disease, which distinguishes her case from the earlier cases. And I believe, I forget now, I think it was at 14, week, 14 months or so after transplant, that's when she went off of, she decided that she wanted to try to go off of ART. And she did. Her case was presented at Croy back in February. And at that point, she was about 14 to 15 months after discontinued ART. And then that's during this period of time where all the HIV markers, all the, the reservoir markers disappeared and along with her antibodies against HIV. And now she's about 19 to 20 months after discontinued ART, and then she continues to have the same, the same status in terms of the HIV seems to be gone. Now we are hoping that she is going to continue to be followed on the protocol that this, the AIDS clinical trials group is putting together with the idea that individuals that will achieve this long-term remission, either through transplant like her or other modalities, they could then be followed long-term. Right. under this protocol so we can monitor their HIV responses or lack of HIV rather. So looking to the future and, and um, given this case and given your work with antibodies, where do you see the future heading, research for cure heading? So when we look at, at her case, for example, and then the other two cases, I think we have to, to accept that the people with HIV, they live long, healthy lives now yeah. because treatment has, has come such a, a long way. So the idea that we, even though these bone marrow transplants with CCR5 Delta 32 donors can lead to more cures, one wouldn't, this is not an approach that can be used widely. There's a discussion that perhaps there could be other studies so that this approach could be offered to more people with HIV that have cancers that would need a bone marrow transplant. But what's important about this case is that it, it, it demonstrates that it is possible to eradicate the virus. So what can be learned from these cases to then adapt to, to other strategies that could be easier to, to implement in a, in a greater way? So, so along those lines, there are different, different approaches that are being tried. So the, there is the, the broadly neutralizing antibodies, which are the antibodies that I work with. There are vaccines that, are, that try to do what I explained earlier, trying to repurpose and then improve the functionality of the T cells. There is also this concept that for these immune approaches to work, you would have to make the reservoir more visible. Because that's the other challenge is that a lot of these cells that carry HIV, they go in disguise, they are in latency. But it has been demonstrated recently that they, from time to time, they do divide to proliferate. And then when they do that, they show HIV on their surface. So which means that they can be targeted. 
but can we make this exposure of HIV often or in a greater extent so that the immune therapies can, can then have greater activity? So there are latency reversing agents, so drugs that can push the, the virus out of latency so that they can be targeted and eliminated. And then there's the reverse of that that has also been demonstrated that some people that are called elite controllers or people that have been on ART for a very long time, they have they go on to have small reservoirs or reservoirs that are very, quote unquote, deep seated. So these are individuals that have the, the HIV has become very, very, very latent, so latent and depending on where in the, in the genome of the cell they are, that they could never come back to replicate. So are there strategies that would then try to replicate that and then try to silence the reservoir? So instead of eliminating the reservoir, these are called block and lock strategies. So you'd block and lock HIV in that mm. latent state. So you're not getting rid of it, but it can't come up. There is also the idea of gene therapy, where you would either transfect cells that have the CCR5 mutations so that they would become resistant to HIV, or CAR T cells, like in cancer therapy, that would try to find these reservoir cells and eliminate them. So there are these multiple different mm. approaches, many of them being adapted from the cancer field. And there are several early stage trials that are now happening parallel. So I think that with a greater understanding of what the reservoir is and how to measure the reservoir with these different strategies now in the clinic, I would think that in the next two to three years, we're going to have a good idea of strategies that show promising results and that can be built upon and be combined so that we can have, but it's, it's going to take a long path. But we've learned, if we look back in the last five years, mm -hmm. we've learned a lot Various strategies came to the clinic, and now we are in the phase of understanding what they can or cannot do in humans in the first studies, and then build on these results to larger and, and hopefully studies that will have greater outcomes. Yeah, because we often get from our patients and they ask us. <laughs> how long, how far away are from it? Yes. Yeah. So what would you tell the or advise for the average person living with HIV does not have a cancer diagnosis, given what you've described today? It's really hard to give a timeline. And then sometimes incredible advances happen and you didn't even realize that they, the, the impact that they were going to have. I think in the time frame of these two to five years, we are going to be positioned to know the strategies to, to carry forward. I do think that there is optimism that these achieving this long-term suppression without treatment can be achieved. But there's also, we all have to be very critical of, of the work and of the challenges ahead. That at this point, I think it's really hard to put a time frame to this. I think right. not, great knowledge will be gained within this two to five year time frame. But can I say that in five years, we're going to have something that can be implemented broadly in people living with HIV. I don't know. I don't know if we can say that yet. Right. Do you think that patients that are diagnosed and then immediately treated or maybe that haven't seeded their reservoir as much, do you think that they'll be at the front of the line for these HIV cure research? Or So that's, yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. So people that, that initiate treatment very early in HIV, they do have smaller reservoirs and they have scaped their immune systems are more preserved. So, so in many ways, this is a target population when we are, we are thinking about these proof of principle studies where they would, in theory, they would be the ideal population for you to start from to demonstrate that a given strategy can work. 
However, and then there's been several studies where individuals that, that treated that were treated early, they went on to discontinue ART. And it's a, it's a, the outcome is it's mixed. In some studies, it showed that there, there's a higher proportion of individuals that on their own would control HIV. But other studies, the virus came back just as quickly as in someone who, who were treated later in the infection. So it, this is still up for debate, but I would say that a lot of that conceptually, it makes sense to try to study some of these strategies in this population, because there are several reasons to believe that they, ha- they would have a lower bar to achieve remission. Having said that, we also understand that in practical terms, even though there's this push for diagnosis and early treatment and, and all the rest, it's still very unusual to have someone initiate treatment within just eight weeks or so of infection. So, so these cohorts of individuals exist. They will be part of clinical trials, but we will be able to implement this broadly, clinically, when these strategies become available. I, I don't know. So ideally, you'd want to get to a strategy that would work just as well, regardless of time of treatment. Right. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. Well, thank you so much, Marina, for joining us today. And I just want to ask you, where can our audience members learn more about your work and or get more information about HIV cure? So there are two two places. One would be to look through the Rockefeller University website under clinical research, or at Cornell, we have a collaborative program for, for HIV cure research that is called REACH, REACH the word REACH. And then through the website, one can can find the the link to the REACH collaboratory that then describes the variety of strategies and studies that we have moving forward to the clinic. Well, that's excellent. Well, thank you again. And thank you again for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. Join us next time for a new episode of Conversations with CEI. Visit us at ceitraining.org and follow us on CEI social media platforms.